Um, we'll begin with a prayer, and then I'll introduce tonight's topic, and, and we'll go from there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we continue this Holy Week, as we come closer to the time when we, we commemorate the passion, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask you to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, enlighten our minds and our hearts, that this time may be a special season of grace for us as we celebrate Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, I want to thank you for coming tonight. How many of you have, this is, for how many of you is this your first Theology on Tap, just out of curiosity? Okay, great. Thank you very much for coming, and I'm, I don't know if you saw it in the Bishop's Bulletin or in your parish uh, bulletin, but feel free whenever the topic is of interest to you to attend. Um, that's what we are doing this for. Uh, my name is Chris Bergwald. I'm the Director of Adult Faith Formation and Evangelization for the Diocese, um, and I choose the speakers um, for Theology on Tap and the topics and so on. And just to give you an idea of what's coming up in the next few months, um, May 14th is going to be our next Theology on Tap. And the topic at that Theology on Tap is going to be uh, gay marriage. Is it possible? And there are going to be three presenters that time. Uh, myself, I will be doing the theology per, uh, angle or perspective. Travis Benson is the diocesan co-director for the Respect Life Office. He is a co-lobbyist for the diocese, and he is also um, director of Catholic Charities. And Travis, as a lawyer, is going to give the legal angle, and then Professor Michael Waddell, who teaches uh, philosophy at Augustana, is going to give the philosophical perspective. So in the course of about 30 to 45 minutes, uh, we hope to give those three angles. And then, as always, like tonight, uh, after the presentation, there will be uh, plenty of time for questions and answers. We'll be taking the summer off, and then um, normally we begin again the second Friday of September. Uh, but we have invited Bishop Carlson to make uh, the fall's opening presentation. He's accepted, but it only worked out to do it the last Friday of August. So after May 14th, the next presentation is going to be August 27th, Friday, August 27th. And uh, Bishop is probably going to be speaking on... Um, being a Catholic in your voting and in the political in political life in general, as the um, election approaches uh, this November, that's probably going to be the topic that he's going to be addressing. Um, but we have to work that out details wise, and then we'll continue in October and November as always. But again, that'll be in the bishop's bulletin and your parish bulletins. Tonight's topic is, as you know, the Passion of the Christ, a discussion about the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And just about a couple of logistics things to begin with. Um, as you came in and got some uh, chicken wings, you may have noticed um, a, little, a little sort of mini bookstore in the back. Vicki Sasani, is the, she runs the gift shop at Holy Spirit uh, Parish in Sioux Falls, and she is able to get some of the books that we have here tonight at a discount because of that. And so if you didn't see it already, feel free to go up afterwards. And then afterwards, up here, um, many of you have probably already seen this. This is called A Guide to the Passion, 100 Questions About the Passion of the Christ. Um, it's a small book. Uh, it's only a dollar per copy. And I brought 200 copies with me tonight. So if anybody hasn't seen this book and you're interested, I'll have them available tonight. Um, just FYI, after the talk. Um, what we're going to do tonight is I'll just give a little bit of an introduction. I'll work so through some of the important things I think that it's uh, important to talk about in regard to the movie. And uh, then we'll open it up for questions that you might have about the movie. Okay. Uh, oh, and another thing. Beginning tonight, uh, Theology on Tap is being... Theology on Tap is being video recorded, and it will be available from the Diocesan Education Office on DVD and VHS to check out. We have an AV library in the Diocesan Education Office, in case you didn't know that. And you can just call up the diocese, and uh, we'll mail you uh, videos if you want to watch them. This is going to be one of them, because we want to offer this throughout the diocese um, beyond the boundaries of Sioux Falls. And also, the audio for every Theology on Tap, beginning with this one, is going to be available at the diocesan website, www.sfcatholic.org. So you'll be able to listen to it online as well. And that's not going to be up tomorrow, but um, you know, within a couple weeks after every, theo every Theology on Tap, we'll have the audio available online to listen to. Okay. Um, 
So enough for the logistics. Uh, as how many of you have? Well, it's going to be easier this way. How many of you have not seen the movie Passion of the Christ? Okay, a couple people. Okay, um, as you all know, probably this uh, the movie is made by Mel Gibson. He directed it. He co-produced it, and uh, it's starring the actor Jim Caviezel as Jesus Christ. Um, Jim, Mel Gibson is one of Hollywood's princes, as Diane Sawyer put it in her interview with him. Um, he's one of the top actors and top directors. Um, some of the, he's one of the guys who can command, I think, like $20 million per movie he stars in. So he's one of the elite, so to speak, in Hollywood. Uh, Jim Caviezel is an up-and-coming actor in Hollywood. He's been in a number of uh, movies, um, co-starring and starring as well. Um, the movie that they made has, as of today, made over $332 million. It's now the number 10 grossing movie all time in the United States. Um, and it's moving up uh, rapidly. I mean, but this weekend, with being Holy Week, I think there are going to be a lot more people who are going to go, going to go see it. And so I'm sure it's going to continue to move up in that ranking. Um, obviously, it's a very popular film. But as you probably know, it's also uh, somewhat controversial, well, very controversial, to, to be frank. Um, even before the movie was released, a year ago, roughly, um, just under a year before the movie came out, uh, there was already controversy brewing about it. A, a script, an early draft of the script, uh, was somehow given to a group of Catholic and Jewish scholars who had studied it, reviewed it, and they were very critical of, of that, at least that early draft they had. And then as, as the movie progressed through the various stages of production, filming production, um, charges of anti-Semitism were made against the movie and even against Mel Gibson um, himself. Um, as the release date, which was Ash Wednesday, approached and got closer, those charges sort of lessened a little bit, but there were still concerns among some people that this movie had the potential to incite anti-Semitism. Uh, of course, Mel Gibson completely and repeatedly denied these charges, um, and we'll get into the anti-Semitism dimension a little bit more later, because really, that's not the most important thing about the movie. Okay, that's the thing that probably gets the most attention, but it's not the most important thing about the movie. Okay? Who killed Jesus? Ultimately, we all did, by our sins. Um, and, and, that's sort of, and that's Gibson's point as well. But... So this anti-Semitism thing, unfortunately, took on a higher profile than it deserved. Uh, but as I said, that's something I want to talk about a little bit later. Um, we're going to look at the accuracy of the movie. Um, is it anti-Semitic? Is it for everyone? We'll look at some of the objections to the film besides the anti-Semitism question, and we'll go from there. But, but what I want to begin with first, though, is talking about what is this movie about? Why did Mel Gibson make this movie? Okay. The subject matter is, of course, Christ's passion, death, and for about 60 seconds, his resurrection. Okay? It's, it's mainly about his passion and death. Mel Gibson um, has said, and having seen the movie three times, I think I'm safe in even what he said and just seeing the movie, you know that his intention was to portray what Jesus underwent on our behalf. And, and even more so on my behalf, and on your behalf, and your behalf, and your behalf. For all of us collectively, but also for all of us individually, what Jesus suffered for us. Okay? He wanted to show Jesus' real, human, fully human suffering on our behalf. Why? Um, why did Mel Gibson want to do this? Because I think he wanted to, to drive home for us as modern Christians who do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering, he wanted to drive home the love that Jesus has for us, which led him to undergo that degree of suffering. Um, Jesus was under, willing to undergo the horror, and most of you have seen it, the horror of his passion and death for each one of us, again, for me and for you. Um, did he have to suffer the way he did? Did he have to suffer? Was it necessary? Um, in one sense, no. Uh, Jesus Christ is the God-man, perfect God, of course, perfect God, perfect man, fully God and fully man, okay? So just one drop of Christ's blood has infinite value. And so in terms of paying the price for our sins, one drop of the blood of Jesus of Nazareth would have been sufficient. Jesus, in that sense, didn't have to go um, undergo the passion that he underwent. But it was his will 
and the will of the Father to undergo that passion and crucifixion, again, to show the love that they have for us, the immense, infinite love that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has for each one of us. Jesus died that death. He suffered that, that torture and death for each one of us, out of love for each one of us. Again, he didn't have to do that. It didn't take all that suffering to atone for our sins. It really only would have taken one drop of his blood, but he underwent that to prove to us how much he loves us, how much the Father loves us. Um, I think it, to drive home, another way to drive home the, the immensity of that is to think it put us in his position in a sense. Would I be willing to undergo that passion and crucifixion and death for a loved one, for my wife? I'd hope so. If I were put in that position, I'd hope so. Would I undergo that passion, crucifixion, and death for people that I've never even met? Probably not. Would I undergo that passion, crucifixion, and death for people who hate me and despise me? I don't think so. But Jesus did. And, and when, you, when you think about that, the fact that he underwent this, I mean, he's, what do he say from the cross? For, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, su- he suffered for everyone, even his crucifiers. Those who killed him, tortured him and killed him. His death was for them as well. And I think uh, it's important to keep that in mind. And, and this is, to me, what Mel Gibson's purpose was, to show the suffering of Jesus Christ for us, the love that it reveals that God has for each one of us. I think that's what Mel Gibson's purpose was, um, and that's, in fact, what he has stated as such. Now, as far as the accuracy, uh, Mel Gibson has made it clear that this is his work. The movie The Passion of the Christ is his project. It's his um, vision. It's his piece of art. Every artist, every, sorry, every work of art requires that the artist make decisions about how they're going to do it, whether it's sculpture, whether it's a painting, whether it's a movie, the artist is going to have to look at his subject and then make certain decisions about how he's going to portray that, um, whether it's on the canvas or out of the rock or marble or on film. And Mel Gibson has said that this is definitely his interpretation. He's a part of this movie. Okay? So it is his. But at the same time, he sought to make it accurate to the biblical accounts, to accord with what we know is true from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's his interpretation of what we know happened from the Gospels. Okay, the Gospels are historical records of Jesus' life and death, and Mel Gibson took those as the basis for the movie. Okay? He did use some other things as well, and I'll talk, talk about that in a minute, but he sought to make this movie agree with, accord with, uh, the, the Gospels. And in my opinion, and the opinion of many, 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 the vast majority of people, um, he did exactly that. For the most part, in, it's definitely in the important aspects, the movie The Passion of the Christ accords with and it agrees with the gospel narratives, what we see in the gospels. Um, there is nothing which is contrary to scripture, to the gospels in the movie. There are definitely, if, if you've seen the movie and you've read the gospels, you'll know that there are things in the movie that we don't find mentioned in the gospels. But nothing that, none of those instances of things that aren't in the Gospels but are in the movie, none of those instances contradict what we find in Scripture. And that's something that's important to note because a lot of critics of the movie will say that, well, such and such was, is not in Scripture, therefore it's unbiblical. No, 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 no. Just because it's not in Scripture doesn't mean it's unbiblical. You can still be in agreement with the Bible even though the tradition that you're portraying is not actually explicitly in the Bible. Um, take Veronica, for instance. Uh, Veronica is the woman who, who offered Christ her veil with which he wiped his face when he was walking to Calvary. Okay? Veronica is not in the Bible. It's not in the Gospels, any of the Gospels, or anywhere else in the New Testament. Is it therefore unbiblical? Is it, against, is it anti-biblical? No. I mean, there's nothing against Scripture in the portrayal of Veronica offering her veil to Jesus to wipe his face. Okay, so, and that's something important to keep in mind, as I said, because many critics will try to make that charge. Well, this episode is not in Scripture, therefore it's against the Bible. Well, that's not necessarily the case. 
okay? And if you have specifics, we can address this, those in the Q&A. Um, the issue is the problem, in a sense, for Mel Gibson is that the Gospels don't give us a screenplay of the passion and death and resurrection, okay? They don't give us a blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute, second-by-second account of what Jesus did, Okay? So anytime anybody's going to make a movie about Jesus' life, even if it's the last 12 hours of his life, they're going to be forced with uh, dealing with the question of how do I fill in these gaps? You know, when, when the gospel writers don't give us every detail, what do I do? And Mel Gibson gave his interpretation of how you fill in those gaps. And again, I would say, and most people would say, um, that the way he did that is in accordance with the Gospels themselves. What Gibson did um, in order to account for those gaps, uh, were primarily two things. First of all, he used the writings of some mystics. Um, Ath- Anne Catherine Emmerich is one of them, and Vicki, I think, still has some copies of a book of her um, visions, her mystical visions in the back. Anne Catherine Emmerich was one of, uh, Gibson, one of Gibson's sources be- besides scripture. Another one, there was another visionary, I can't recall her name right now, but he also relied on her as well. But in addition to that, some things he just gave his own vision. He, he used his artistic license as a movie maker, as a filmmaker, and just sort of gave his conjecture on how to portray um, certain things in the movie. They're things that you won't find in the Bible or in any mystic's writings. They're just his particular take on, on what was going on in that particular event or episode. Okay? But again, even in those instances, we don't find things that are anti-biblical, which contradict the gospel accounts. Okay? There are certain things that we just don't know. Again, there's no screenplay in the gospel. We just don't know um, how things happened in the minute, minute details, and Gibson is entitled as a filmmaker to offer his interpretation. He has to be uh, fair, I guess, and do his best to be accurate, and I think he did that. But there's going to be that interpretation at the same time. Okay? Um, it's very accurate. There are some minor things you could quibble with, but in terms of the central message of the movie, showing the, the depth of Christ's suffering and his death, the, the movie is very, very accurate. Okay. The movie is also a very Catholic movie. It's a very Catholic movie. Now, people who aren't Catholics and don't know a lot about Catholicism, other Christians may not always pick up on it, but is, it is especially a very Marian movie and a very Eucharistic movie. Okay. And if you've seen it, you probably know what I'm talking about. I'm, Mary plays a very important role, a, Jesus, of course, plays a central role, but Mary is right there in, in, the, in the film. I mean, Gibson gave Mary the, a very prominent position, which uh, I would say, and the church would say, she deserved. Um, the apostles call Mary mother. And we know that that's the case because Jesus on the cross gave Mary to John and John to Mary. And in that act, Jesus was implying that John, as the blessed disciple, the sort of the prototype for all of us as disciples, Mary is our spiritual mother, the spiritual mother of every disciple. That's something that um, has been part of not just Catholic belief, but Orthodox belief. Luther believed the same thing, that Mary was the mother of all Christians. Okay? And you see that in the movie uh, in a very clear way. She obviously suffers as she watches her son. If you've seen the movie, and, and I've talked to uh, a number of moms, and it's a very hard movie to watch, especially when we're for moms, because... Mary is suffering as she sees what her son, Jesus is really her son, um, and the movie shows that. Uh, Mary suffers as she sees the suffering of her son. But at the same time, because of her great faith, she accepts and embraces what the will of the Father is. She knows that this is what has to happen, and she accepts it. She doesn't despair about the, the immense suffering of her son. She, she suffers because of it, but she accepts it as well as the will of the Father. Um, and as far as Eucharistic, I, I think this is especially the case during the, resur- uh, the crucifixion. Sorry, As Jesus is being nailed to the cross, then he's lifted up. And as he's being lifted up, what are the flashbacks to? The Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the Eucharist, the Mass, this is my body given up for you. 
Okay, as Jesus lifts up the host in the flashback to the Last Supper, which is his body, as he lifts up his body, his body is being lifted up on the cross at the same time. And then moments later, as Jesus is on hanging on the cross now, the flashback is to Jesus consecrating the wine into his blood, becomes his blood. This is the blood of the covenant given for you. And what happens? I mean, his blood is flowing down the cross. I mean, Mel Gibson is a, is a I mean, he's an Academy Award-winning actor and director. And you can see his expertise in this movie and things like that where the flashbacks correspond with it. It's not just all willy-nilly, oh, I think I'll throw in this flashback here or there. Everything's done for a reason. And that, this is just one example. Again, it's a, it's a very, very um, Eucharistic movie. So it's a very Catholic movie, especially in those ways. Is it an anti-Semitic movie? No. Absolutely, positively not. Um, for the most part, the movie accurately portrays the gospel accounts of Christ's passion and death. The fact of the matter is, some Jewish leaders were complicit in Christ's death. Some Jewish leaders wanted Christ to be crucified, and they got what they want, and the movie shows that. Okay? that it's showing history. But it doesn't make all Jewish leaders, let alone Jews, all Jews of that time, let alone all Jews of all time, uh, doesn't make them all out to be the bad guy. Okay, who are the most sadistic characters in the movie? The Romans. The Roman soldiers. If you've seen it, I mean, they they get immense joy and pleasure. You see it on their face when they're scourging Christ and when they're beating him and pushing him up up the hill and when they're crucifying him. The Romans are the sadists, not the Jews. The Jews believe this has to happen because Jesus is blaspheming against God but they don't get pleasure out of it. If you remember during the scourging scene, the, uh, the, the Jews are there and they watch as, as Christ is caned, but then they leave during that and they don't see what else goes on. I mean, they're, again, they're not standing there getting joy out of what happens to Christ. Even what, what they did see, they weren't getting the joy and the pleasure out of it, the sadistic pleasure that the Roman guards were getting out of it while they were doing it. Okay? Um, it's Pilate who allows a man that he knows to be innocent to be killed. Pilate has the power to release Christ, but what does he do? He allows him to be tortured and crucified, even though he knows that he's innocent. And of course, there are, are Jews who are friendly to Jesus. Jesus himself is Jewish. Mary, his mother, is Jewish. The apostles were all Jewish. Mary Magdalene is Jewish. Okay? There are all sorts of... Uh, Jewish figures who are, um, as, I, as I said, friendly to Christ. Two members of the Sanhedrin object to the trial. When Christ is on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, there are two members of the Sanhedrin that object to this that because the, the witnesses are contradicting themselves and they're shouted out and they're pushed out. But the fact of the matter is we have two Jewish leaders who are on Christ's side. They, 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 push, they, they get pushed out of the room. But again, there are Jewish leaders on Christ's side. Simon of Cyrene who takes up Christ's cross, is a Jew. One of the Roman guards spats at him. Jew, or Judeus, he says in Latin. Um, again, he is the Jew hater, not the Jews. Veronica, who offers her veil, is a Jew. So there are all sorts of, of figures in the movie who are Jewish, who we would say are on the right side. Not all of the Jews are portrayed as being complicit in Christ's death, as the bad guys in Christ's death. Um, today, no Jewish figures, may, at least major Jewish figures in the United States, have said that this movie is anti-Semitic. Abe Foxman is the director of the Anti-Defamation League, and he said that Mel Gibson is not an anti-Semite, this movie is not anti-Semitic. His only concern was that the movie has the potential to incite anti-Semitism. The problem with that is, two days ago on, on Passion Sunday, what was the gospel? The Passion. We read The Passion. Now, by Abe Foxman's standard, I would say, doing that, reading The Passion, could incite anti-Semitism. Okay? The fact that the movie might, might incite anti-Semitism 
is not an argument, or has the potential to incite anti-Semitism, is not a very strong argument against it, um, in my opinion. In addition to that, some other Jewish commentators in our country ha uh, were very positive about the film. Michael Medved is a film critic, and he was uh, positive about it. Rabbi, rabbi David Levin is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and he had good things to say about the movie. Uh, he didn't think it was anti-Semitic. The president of the synagogue here in Sioux Falls, um, with whom I saw the movie, and we had a discussion for the Argus afterwards on Ash Wednesday, um, he th thinks that the movie has potential to encourage dialogue between Jews and Christians. He didn't think it was anti-Semitic. The only problems he had with the movie are things that we find in the Gospels. So he didn't think that the Gospels um, went away, or that the movie went away from the Gospels uh, and, and were overtly anti-Semitic. The actress who plays Mary is Jewish, and her father is a Holocaust camp survivor. And they reviewed the script before she accepted the part. Clearly, she didn't think, and her dad didn't think, and she said this, they didn't think it was anti-Semitic. Okay? Um, so the whole anti-Semitism thing really doesn't have a basis. Um, another question that sometimes people ask is, is this movie for everyone? And I would say no. It's not for everyone. Um, you don't have to see this movie. Okay, seeing this movie is not a, sort of a gauge, an indicator of whether or not you're a good Christian or a good Catholic. All right, some people are getting a little bit, I think, carried away because it is such a powerful movie and say, everybody's got to see this movie. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Some people who already well know what Christ's passion involved simply cannot handle the portrayal of the violence. And, and that's fine. We, we shouldn't attack or get down or, or be critical towards people who decide not to see that movie for, see the movie for that reason or any other reason. Okay? It's, it's not for everyone. But for many of us, it can be helpful for us to realize the suffering that Jesus underwent. I'd say for most of us, it can be helpful. But if you know somebody who, who says, you know, I'm just not comfortable seeing the movie, and you talk to them about it, I mean, don't, don't push the issue, because that's fine. Um, at the same time, there are some people who say that, and there are Christian people who will say this, um, who would say that the movie is anti-Christian, that it's against the gospel, and that is not the case. Okay? Some of you know who I'm talking about. Um, that's not the case at all. The movie is not against the gospel. It's not contrary to the gospel. The movie is not fascinated with torture. The movie is not about Mel Gibson's bloodlust. The camera does not love the violence. Okay, these are some charges that I've heard about the movie. And that's not the case. Gibson is portraying, the movie portrays what happens to Christ, and it's very brutal. But that's because what happened to Jesus is very brutal. We're just seeing a realistic portrayal of it. I think, and then this was brought up by a number of people, it seems to be the case that a lot of people, when they see crucifixion or uh, a cross, um, it's very antiseptic. You know, I think for most of us, looking, our, most of our crucifixes at home or in our churches are probably pretty antiseptic, pretty clean. But when you see the movie, you get an idea of what it was really like. And, and, and that's all Mel Gibson was trying to portray. Portrayals of the Passion and Crucifixion have been a part of Catholic and Christian art and meditation for centuries. Okay? Showing the, the, the graphic nature of what Jesus underwent is nothing new. Now, maybe may new in a film, but in paintings and other, other forms of art, they've been, it's been around for a long, long time. And so to attack this movie is to attack the entire tradition of Christian art concerning the crucifixion, passion and crucifixion. Okay? Um, those of us who see the movie, have seen the movie more than once are not sadists. Okay? I am not a sadist. I just want to make that clear. I've seen the movie three times, not because I love seeing the suffering, but because it's a powerful portrayal of that suffering. Okay? And some people would say that to see the movie more than once is, uh, is an indication that you've got some sort of problem and an attraction to pain. And that's not the case, I don't think. I don't, that's, but, um, so that's not the case. Okay? Um, some people have problems with things that aren't found in the Bible, as I said before. Um, 
For instance, the Jews are there watching at least the beginning of the scourging. Or the temple, there's this earthquake that destroys the temple. Well, in the Bible, we don't see the Jews at the scourging, and only the veil is torn in the temple. It's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, it's not in the Bible, but again, it's not central to the movie. It's Gibson taking his artistic license. And I don't think there's any reason to get real worked up about that. Um, some things you could quibble with. Maybe that, that they're not the best portrayal or the best interpretation of what we know about Scripture. But for the most part, again, as I said before repeatedly, everything is in accord with the gospel accounts that we see in Scripture. Okay? The last thing I want to do before questions is talk a little bit about some of the things that happened during the making of the movie. And uh, many of you may have heard some of these things, but they're interesting, and I'm just going to share them with, with you. Um, Mel Gibson had been thinking about making this movie for over a decade. It had been on his mind um, going back, uh, I think, 12, 13 years when he had his reversion. Um, we have at the, in the diocesan office uh, a DVD copy of the interview with Diane Sawyer that aired a week and a half before the movie came out. So again, if you're interested in seeing that, because it's a, it's a, it's a great interview, um, Mel Gibson talking about the origins of this movie. So if you're interested in seeing that, feel free to call and again, we can send that out to you, loan it to you for a time. But um, in, that, in that interview, he talked about what he was trying to do, uh, making this movie and the origins of it. And he said that he saw this movie called The Thin Red Line, in which Jim Caviezel starred. It was Jim Caviezel's first major film in which he was a co-star. And when he saw him in that movie, he thought, this is the guy I want to play Jesus when I make my movie about the passion. And so what he did, um, I guess this would have been, I think, three years ago, um, uh, one of the other producers at Icon Productions, which is Mel Gibson's uh, production house, called in Jim Caviezel to talk about a surfing movie. Okay? So Jim Caviezel comes into Icon Pictures, is meeting with this guy, um, uh, thinking that he's being considered for a role in a surfing movie. And so they're talking, and Caviezel's pretty relaxed. Some of this is Jim Caviezel. Um, he talked about this when he was on the, the Late Show with Jay Leno. And he said that he's talking, and then at one point during the, the conversation, during the interview, um, in walks Mel Gibson. And all of a sudden, Caviezel's like, whoa. Sort of sat up a little straighter and uh, got a little more serious, a little bit more nervous. And they continued to talk, and then the, the conversation started to change to um, passion plays and to accounts of the passion. And they're talking, and at some point, Caviezel says to Gibson, you want me to play Jesus, don't you? And Mel Gibson, as he says in this interview with Diane Sawyer, um, gets addicted to things very easily. And one thing is, I don't know if he's still a chain smoker, but he had been a chain smoker at one point. And during the interview, he was smoking. And he's like, yeah, he goes like that. <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's okay. So that's out in the open. So that's what he wants. So they talk about it more. The next, and Caviezel agrees. The next day, Gibson calls Caviezel, and he's talking to him, and he says, are you sure you want this? You know, this could cost you, you know, your career. Are you sure you want to go through this? Caviezel's like, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. So they're going on, they're talking, and then the conversation's wrapping up, and Caviezel says, oh, there's one thing I think you should know. What's that? Uh, you know, my name, Jim Caviezel, my initials are JC, and I'm 33 years old. <laughs> You're freaking me out! <laughs> <laughs> So that was how Jim Caviezel got the part. His initials were JC, he's 33, and Gibson wanted him to portray Jesus. In my opinion, he's the best film portrayal of Christ. He's, not, I mean, he's, he's manly, he's got a sense of humor, he loves his mother. If you've seen it, the, the scenes flashing back to the, when he's making the table, um, doing the carpentry work and so on. Um, and, he's, and he smiles now and then, which is nice to see in a portrayal of Jesus on film. Um, so uh, that's how... Caviezel got the part, and he, he himself really suffered during the making of the movie. Um, he dislocated his shoulder while he was on the cross because they filmed the cross in Italy, and they were on this, well, as you see in the movie, it's on this rocky hill, that, and there were uh, winds, 30-mile-an-hour winds that will come up from the gully, the, the valley, and it knock him against the cross while he's hanging on it, and he dislocated his shoulder while they were filming um, him hanging on the cross. He got hypothermia. Um, and he got struck by lightning while he was hanging on the cross. So uh, he underwent a lot. He, he said afterwards, um, 
he looked like he went to Don King's hairstylist. I mean, he's, you know. Um, so he, he underwent a lot for the film. Um, Maya Morgenstern is the actress who, she's from Eastern Europe. She plays Mary. Her last name, as I said, she was Jewish, is Jewish. Her dad's Jewish. Um, her last name, Morgenstern, is, I think, German for Morning Star, which is a Marian title. Um, Mel Gibson had a priest on the set. They had mass every day. Um, Caviezel had relics from three different saints on him at all times, even during the crucifixion. In his loincloth, he was carrying relics with him. Um, and there are all sorts of people who appeared on the set and then were gone. I mean, the, the, the people who were there would say apparitions. I mean, saints appearing, all sorts of things. There are all sorts of conversions. I mean, Italy, um, I lived in Italy for three years, and it's very much nominally Catholic. Uh, a lot of the Catholics don't practice their faith. But a lot of the crew was, was Italian, and a lot of them came back to the faith during the making of the movie. There are a lot of pregnancies during the movie, which is very unusual because the crew is away from their family most of the time. But there are all sorts of things that were going on. Um, and the people who were away were the fathers and mothers. So, um, There are all sorts of things that happened. Mel Gibson himself could not find a, a, a major studio to, to help him produce the movie, so he footed the $30 million bill to make the movie. Okay, It's made $332 million and counting. So Mel Gibson has gotten his money back a few times over. Okay. Um, so with that, I'm going to uh, stop and open it up for questions. Yes. Okay, you're, actually, you're, you're combining two there. Uh, during the scourging, while Jesus is being scourged, uh, you see Satan appears. Satan appears a couple times during the movie. And the second time he appears is during the scourging. And I'm sure all of you wondered, I put, this is the blurb I put in the ad, what the heck's up with that baby? Okay, you see Satan carrying this baby, but it's an old baby. It's an old man. It's, he's, the, the baby has hair on its back. It's got features of a of a 40-year-old, and so on. What is up with that baby? That, that's not in the Bible, okay? Obviously, you don't find it in the Gospel accounts. So what is that portrayal, a portrayal of? Um, it's definitely Mel Gibson's artistic license. It's not from any of the mystical writings either. Um, and apparently what he was trying to try and portray was primarily, it's a parody of Mary, who's out there watching her son suffer. So you've got the mother-child relationship, and Satan's got its child as well. Okay? So sort of a, a, a satanic parody on what the relationship that, between Mary and her son. And another thing that I think is also there theologically, um, Satan in a sense what, uh, helped bring sin into the world by the temptation of Adam and Eve. So Satan is responsible in a sense for sin and what uh, St. Paul talks about the man of sin that we all have that's wiped away at our baptism. To me, that child was sort of a portrayal of that man of sin that Satan helped bring into the world. Okay. So that's, but primarily, it's that parody of the, the mother-child relationship, primarily. Satan, by the way, is... Uh, does anybody know? Well, it, it, Satan is portrayed by a woman. Uh, it's, it's an actress who portrays Satan, but they try to make the portrayal very androgynous. So her eyebrows were shaved, and her voice has a masculine feel to it to try to portray the androgynous character, uh, aspect of, of the demon. Because Satan isn't it, not a he or a she. And they try to portray that as well. I think they did very well, actually. So that's what, does that answer your question? Oh, the other thing is, would it be like evil being, he would have released this evil on the world was the only other, other thing I'd thought about it. Uh, you mean with the child? Yeah. Not, it was primarily that mother-child relationship. Any other questions? Yes. You said that somebody, <coughs> oh, sorry. you said that somebody has said this movie is anti-Christian? Yeah. Who said that? Uh, I'm not going to tell you when we're on tape and so on. I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> Yes, okay. and that's all I'll say. <laughs> no 20 questions. <laughs> How far 
or was it from where Jesus was scourged to the top at Golgotha? Was it a two-block walk, a three-block walk? Because it just seemed impossible for anybody to walk. How far was it from where Jesus was scourged to Golgotha? Um, because of the suffering that scourging involved, how did Jesus make it that? It, it was a good distance. We had to go outside of the city walls. And, and the uh, um, Pilate's palace... Um, was not just on the edge of, of Jerusalem. So he had to, had to walk through the city and outside of the walls and up the hill of Golgotha, which isn't, I mean, it's not like two miles outside of the city or anything. I mean, you, it's, it's outside of the city walls, but it was a good uh, several hundred yards at least. Any other questions? You know, uh, what is your insight on, and the reason I ask is because a lot of theologians are to criticize the end where... Um, there's the teardrop yeah. from from the sky because they say God couldn't suffer like that to have the tears. So what's what's your insight? What's your opinion on that? There, the scene, and when I first, well, the only reason I knew what was going on is because I read somebody's talking about it before. There's the one scene where you see this drop of water fall, and it's from this vertical perspective, and it splashes, and that's when the wind starts to blow. That is uh, symbolically a tear of the Father, okay, a tear of Jesus' Father, our, our Heavenly Father, and you know, well, the father can't suffer. Well, that's true. I, I think that's just Mel Gibson's, his artistic license, his interpretation of showing the love of the father for the son. I mean, this was the father's will for the son, so he wouldn't have, and how to, God's suffering is a, is a deep theological issue, actually. Um, but he doesn't suffer in the sense that we do. So I think it's just Gibson's portrayal of the love of the father for the son at that obviously crucial moment. Wait just a minute. A couple, okay. Sorry, I have a couple questions. First is, uh, I've heard it said that um, the the lashings that Christ received, that he received twice as many as the worst criminal would receive in, by Roman standards. Is that a true statement historically? Did Jesus receive twice as many uh, lashings as uh, would normally be given to a criminal? It, Roman citizens could only be lashed, scourged with 30, 39 blows, because it was sort of believed that the 40th blow would kill you. So if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be scourged more than 39 times. Jesus was not a Roman citizen, so we don't know how many times he was scourged. I've never, I mean, it's possible, but I've never heard that it was definitely twice as much as the worst criminal. I think that's probably a, a pious tradition, but there's no, we, there's no historical documentation for that. No recollection of the source of it. Yeah, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just we don't know that that's actually the case. The other question is, I've had a lot of dialogue about the historical Christ off of this movie. Um, and I'm just kind of curious. Uh, you mentioned some of the sources that Gibson used in terms of uh, how, how should a Catholic approach someone who has a historical perspective of Christ? who sees a movie like this and says, oh, he was influenced by these mystics, he's using artistic license, um, they don't necessarily have uh, an understanding of oral tradition right. and what that means for a Catholic, and, and that it's okay for us to extrapolate through the Holy Spirit throughout the centuries. How would you respond to a, just either another Christian or, yes. or a non-Christian who says, you know. Yeah, yeah, how do we as Catholics respond to those other people, other Christians or... or um uh, people who aren't even Christian, who ask about the things that are in the movie but they aren't found in the scriptures, as primarily where your question is, right? Um, again, well, y you could get into the whole thing of uh, why we believe in tradition, sacred tradition, and, and the authority of the magisterium and so on. But I think in many cases it's just as easy to say, listen, it doesn't go against what's in the Bible. And, and there's nothing wrong with Gibson just using the traditions that he has to call upon in order to portray these things. I mean, the thing is, like, Anne Catherine Emmerich, I mean, her visions, like every private revelation, as Catholics, we're free to believe them, but we don't have to believe them. You know, and so it's not like it's binding for us to believe. Gibson called on them to help fill in those gaps. And again, I, I would say to somebody who asked that question, is there anything anti-scriptural in that portrayal? And I don't... I think the answer is no. Okay. There's a question here. What's the significance of those uh, satanic children that were harassing oh. Judas yeah. Iscariot 
all the way to his death. <clears throat> What's the uh, significance of the, the demonic children, the satanic children, the, the, the demon children that were harassing Judas all the way to his death? Um, I think, actually, the answer they give in this little booklet is the best because what they, th their answer is um, sin twists everything that is true and good and beautiful. Even children who epitomi epitomize innocence are twisted in a sense. Our, our, our vision of them is twisted by sin. So Judas, in his sin, by his sin, even his, in his mind, the uh, demons appeared as children. Because in one scene, you see that he's just sort of falling all over the place. In other words, nobody else saw these demons. So he saw them, and that's how he saw them, as children, because that's it was his, the sin he had committed had twisted everything that's true, good, and beautiful, or his perception of the true, the good, and the beautiful, including the epitome of innocence was his children. So, by the way, before, before I get to another question, Judas, um, I don't know if anybody caught, because I didn't catch it the first time, but when he's watching the trial of the Sanhedrin, there's that pillar that he's standing against, and he keeps rubbing his face against the pillar and especially his mouth. And when he throws the money bag back, before he does, he does the same thing. He rubs it and then throws it back at the feet of Caiaphas, the high priest. And later you see when the, when the demons start to harass him, his, his lips are all beat up and so on. And I, when I saw it the first time, I'm like, what is going on? And then I think I read, what did, how, did, how did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. And so he's trying to wipe away that kiss by which he betrayed his Lord. Which I just, I mean, it's, those, again, those little things. The mic, by the way, is for the, the videotape. It's not for the speakers, in case you're wondering. Can you expound a little bit about, continue on with Judas, and just, what does the church teach as far as, like, how Gibson portrayed it, and what does the church teach on Judas, and, okay. like, yeah. What does the church teach on Judas? Um, you know, Mel Gibson portrays him one way. The movie Jesus of Nazareth portrays him a very similar way. What does the church teach on Judas? The church doesn't teach very much on Judas at all. Um, pretty Nothing beyond scripture, in fact. And so I think it's always, for a movie maker, a filmmaker, it's always uh, a, a question, how do I portray Judas as this mean, malicious, ill-willed character who just wants to betray Christ, betray Christ? Or as somebody who's sympathetic and for whatever reason makes a mistake, which is sort of what Mel Gibson does. I'm inclined to go with Mel Gibson's portrayal because um, what some people would argue is that Judas, and there's some evidence for this, Judas expected Jesus or may have expected Jesus to be an earthly Messiah, which was what all the, what all the Jews were expecting. Um, somebody who would rule with power, a, a great military leader, a, a, a political king, um, who would restore the glory of the Davidic kingdom as the Messiah, as the, the, the uh, Davidic king. Um, but that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to establish a heavenly kingdom. And so maybe that Judas was hoping by betraying Jesus that this would force Jesus to reveal his true self, you know, and, and you know, appear in splendor and glory and, and prove to the high priest and the, the rest of the, the Jewish leaders who didn't believe in him, prove to him who he was. But that's not what Jesus did. And in the movie, you see, um, you see Judas realizing that's, that's not what's going on, and he comes to regret his decision. And the difference between him and Peter is that Peter hoped and repented. Judas despaired because of his sin, even to his death. Okay, that's the, both Jesus, both P Judas and Peter betray Christ, but one of them has hope and repents. The other one despairs and ultimately takes his own life. The church does not say, by the way, I mean, at, you know the church is teaching suicide. Um, we, you don't know the state of the mind of the person, and, and you can't say where they are. They, they could be in heaven. And the same is true with Judas. We don't know, even though Judas betrayed Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, we, we don't know his eternal fate. We don't know that for anybody. Why did the women wipe up the blood after Jesus was scourged? Why did the women wipe up the blood after Jesus was scourged? Um, the wife of Pilate brings Jesus, or brings Mary, um, uh, 
uh, uh, some towels, some cloth. And then Mary and Mary Magdalene wipe up the blood. And I think that uh, that's Gibson's artistic portrayal, his license trying to show the preciousness of Jesus' blood. And Mary and Mary Magdalene knowing that preciousness. And, and so they're, they're wiping up that precious blood. Yeah, and you could also say it's Eucharistic. You know, whenever, you know, how the reverence that we have for the, for the blood of Christ present under the appearance of wine. Um, if there's any, any spills or anything, we always wipe that up and make, make sure it's, it's taken care of. Any other questions? I forgot what my first question was, but... In that scene where she's wiping up the blood, I think wasn't it in the mystic, either one of the Mary of Greta or Anne Catherine Emmerich's, showing the angels picking up the blood in that, oh. in those, uh, so I don't know, it might have been his way of showing that yeah. by okay. using human. One of the mystics um, yeah. may have portrayed in, in their vision of the passion, um, angels cleaning, wiping up Christ's blood. And maybe that's how Gibson was portraying that, that's possible. Because we don't see any... Excuse me, see any angels in the film portrayed one way or the other. Now, another thing that's interesting, by the way, there are only two people who see Satan in the movie, Jesus and Mary. And to me, one of the, mo one of the I mean, there are a ton of powerful scenes, but when, when Christ is carrying his cross, you see on one side, there's Mary, Mary Magdalene, and John. And then at one point, Satan is on the other side, you know, gliding as it does in the movie, gliding through the crowd. And Mary and Satan are having this, I mean, they lock eyes and they're having this, you know, this battle, so to speak. And Mary's expression to me is perfect because it's not, it's not rage. It's just determination, just looking. And she, not fear, not rage, just she just looks. You know, and Satan obviously has a, a satanic look. Um, but, but Mary has a, a, just a determined look. I don't know how to portray it in words. I mean, just the way that, the, that Maya Morgenstern portrayed it to me was perfect. But again, she's the only one who sees Satan. Nobody else sees it, which is interesting. Um, just one more question. In the part where uh, Jesus is first brought to the Romans, and he looks up and he sees the doves, is there any significance to that besides just knowing that you know, the Holy Spirit is there with him, or is, it, is there anything else significant about that? Uh, when Jesus first goes uh, before Pilate, he looks up uh, in the square and sees the dove, which is a representation of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And that's, again, all I've just the, the presence of the Spirit with him, which he knows as the Son of God, but, you know, a visible portrayal in the movie. And that's artistic license, but just portraying the, that the Spirit of God is still upon him. I'll go back there first. The scene where Mary uh, at the at Golgotha she holds the earth yeah. and then releases it. Uh, I had heard so that there was some significance to that. I was listening to a Marian theologian. I don't remember what they how they explained that. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Part. Um, okay, so uh, the question was about when uh, when when Jesus is being crucified, Mary is down almost uh, prostrated, clutching the gravel, and then at one point. She stands up and releases. And, and, and there may be a, a more significant theological point than this, but primarily to me what, what's being portrayed there is just, I mean, she, she, the agony, that she, the emotional torment that she's undergoing as Jesus is being crucified. But then she just, again, she knows this is the will of the Father, and she just lets go. She abandons herself to the will of the Father and accepts what's going on. I think that's primarily. Now, but there might be more. Uh, do you remember who it was, the theologian? Mark, Mark yeah. Dr. Miravalli would have, I'm sure, a lot more to say about it, but maybe I have to call him, give him a call now. I had him. He was, he was a, a teacher and a colleague of mine when I taught in Steubenville, so I may have to ask him about that. Another thing, by the way, um, the Eucharistic theme. Note that it's after the flashbacks to the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist, and it's after that, so after the consecration, that Mary and Mary Magdalene and John stand. Okay. Now, in 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 um, everywhere but the United States in the world, at, you 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 kneel before the consecration, but you stand right afterwards. And so again, you have a subtle 
indication of that Eucharistic theme during the crucifixion. Uh, there's a question up here. I'm wondering a little bit about the centurion when he pierces his side in the end and it shows that shower coming down on him. Now I know that that's biblical, that his side was pierced, but it also gives you the impression that he's also saved yep. at that point. Anything biblical there about his being saved or... The, yeah, the, uh, the centurion um, who pierces Jesus' side after Jesus has died to make sure he's dead, um, and then there's that shower of blood and water, which as you said is biblical. Um, what else is it being indicated? Is it being indicated as salvation? I, would, I think it's an artistic representation of his baptism, of his salvation by baptism. He's baptized. In, and when we're baptized by water, it's Christ's blood that's cleansing us. And he's literally being cleansed by the water and blood. It washed. Yep, absolutely. And uh, tradition says that that centurion um, was converted at that moment. And I can't remember his name now. What? Longinus, St. Longinus. He, you know, there's a, a small T tradition that St. Longinus is his name. Any other questions? Wait, wait a second, Dad. Can you expand on the crow on the cross? As far as Can I expand on the crow on the cross yep. that picks, plucks the eye of the bad thief? Um, when, during crucifixion, uh, normally, you would hang on the cross, the, those who were crucified would be on the cross for one, two, even three days. Because you actually, the, how you die in crucifixion is you've got to keep lifting yourself up to, to, so you can breathe. And eventually, over time, you die because you, you get tired and worn out and you can't expand your lungs and you asphyxiate to death. Is normally So you're up there the whole time and dogs would come by and if you were crucified low enough, Dogs would start chewing on you, and there would be crows that would appear. And I mean, so, so it was portraying what actually, I mean, some of the things that can happen to somebody who's being crucified. He compressed it. I mean, normally, you know, that wouldn't necessarily all happen right in the first, you know, hour or whatever, but that's some of the things that happen while you're being crucified. Maybe I misunderstood, but where do you get that Mel Gibson is sympathetic towards Judas? I didn't where do I get that Mel Gibson is sympathetic towards Judas? What I, mean, what I meant by that was he, he doesn't portray Judas as a, a, a very malicious. He's not, Judas doesn't appear as a very malicious, you know, when he comes up to Jesus, you know, he doesn't curse him or swear at him. or you know, he, he, He's betraying Jesus, but he always seems a little bit uncertain. What's that? No, I know, but but some people would but some people would say that obviously in order to to, to betray Jesus he might have, must have been filled with hate or something. So that that's what I meant by that. Oh. Why was Jesus carrying his whole cross and oh. the thieves just had the cross? Why beam? did Jesus carry the whole cross and not just the cross beam? Artistic license. We don't, I mean, he, that could have actually happened, or what probably is probably more likely is that he would have only carried the cross beam and he would have carried it across his shoulders. Um, but we don't know that for sure, and I, the, there's, Gibson is taking his artistic license. Okay. Any other questions right now? Okay. And by the way, I will be free to answer questions um, after this as well. Father Karapi the other night on EWTN, he said there is a website where people have um, been on, online with miracles that have happened to them since seeing um, the passion. And so I was wondering if you knew any more. And, and this coming from Father Karapi has some good validity. Yeah, I, I don't. Does anybody know anything? A website where showing the miracles from people who have seen the movie or anything? Father Karapi, uh, yeah, he does, he does have some validity, was uh, on EWTN, but I haven't heard that before, so I'm curious about that. But, okay. There is a murderer who tombed himself in. Somebody, I think he killed his girlfriend, I think. Uh, and, and he staged it like a suicide, so they concluded that she had killed herself, and he saw the movie and he turned himself in. And this is not like the next day. I mean, this is after some time had passed. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, some other people have turned themselves in. I've heard that. Any other questions right now? I remember the one I had. You, have, you remember the one? You, okay. This will be... 
Did you have a question? No. This will be, well, yeah, we'll see. When we were talking about Judas yeah. and, we, and the church teaches that we don't ever pronounce judgment, I was just reminded in my mind of our Lord saying, Father, I have kept all those you have given to me. I'm paraphrasing this, of course. Except the one who was destined to be lost? He, he, some, in one place in the gospel, Jesus does say something that sounds pretty bad. About, it was better that he would never have been born, yeah. I think is what he yeah. says. But again, but the church, you know, and he it's... He doesn't say his name. He did. <laughs> well, it's probably Judas. Well, I mean, who else you got to have? Then? Yeah, it was probably Judas, but, we, but still the church, we don't know about anybody, you know, at the, at the moment of their death, the state of their soul. So, um, Again, I will be up here if anybody wants to ask questions. Or again, as I said, um, a dollar a piece, and we've got several hundred of them, so don't be shy if you're interested. Okay, thank you all for coming. And again, May 14th will be the next Theology on Tap, and that is a Friday. Thank you.